You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. And good morning, citizens. It is really, really good to be with all of you again. Greetings from the mothership. We love you guys. We pray for you guys, and we're really, really proud of you. It is so exciting for me to get to be here again today to open God's word with all of you. Our text was read really beautifully for us. Thank you, Adam. If you could pull out your Bibles, that's going to be helpful this morning because we're not going to go through the psalm verse by verse. We're going to kind of jump around a little bit. And we're going to look at this psalm through a couple different angles and see what God might want us to take from his word. Now, I'm sure you've heard this many times in your psalm series. A psalm is like a prayer or a song. That's a good thing to have in the back of your mind as we read it. Now, it could be for many people if there's lots of we's and ours in the psalm, or it could be just one person, which is the case this morning, just an individual praying or singing. And I don't know if you feel like this, I feel like this, that psalms really draw us into the feeling of the words on the page, maybe in a different way than other parts of Scripture. Has anybody ever heard the expression, anything too stupid to be spoken is sung? Heard that expression? That's from a French philosopher called Voltaire. I don't take a whole lot of what he said seriously. He abandoned his Christian faith and said some pretty messed up stuff too. But there's a ring of truth for me to anything too stupid to be spoken is sung. And yet, many of us identify really strongly with music. It's a strange dichotomy, right? It's because we can relate to what's being expressed in music. Think about your favorite song for a second. Think about it, you got it? Not your worship song, you good Christians? Just like your favorite tune? You can hear it in your ears? It's probably a love song of some kind, right? Now imagine sitting down your honey and just like reading those words to her without a melody, right? Sweetheart, sit down. I would walk 500 miles. I'd walk 500 more. Just be... It's ridiculous. I know you love me. I know you care. Just shout whenever and I'll be there. It's, it's dumb. But we love them. And that's because, although the words in order might sound kind of strange or maybe even a little extreme, the sense or the feeling of those words describes something we have felt exactly. So this is often the case with the Psalms. Something gets stated in a way that when you're reading it, it feels like it's far, far away, but then when you look at the sense, the feeling that's being described, it's like right here, you get it. And I think we're going to see that this morning in our psalm. So I'm just going to pray really quick, and then we're going to dive into Psalm 31. Let's pray together. Lord God, once again, we welcome you here. This is your church, Lord. It is such a good thing to gather and to have a Sabbath, but much more than that, Lord, to have the Lord's Day, to have a day when the saints remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this morning, once again, Jesus, we worship you for rising again. We are trusting in you for our salvation. And Lord, we ask that by your spirit and through your word, you would illuminate a little bit of yourself for us this morning, that we would know you a little better for having been here, that we would have a closer relationship with you for having been here. And ultimately, God, we want to bring you glory today. And so we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Psalm 31, and you'll notice a little title right above it. It says, A Psalm of David, right? 
So that's King David. King David's the author of this psalm. Now, many of David's psalms in the psalms, in the title, you'll see an allusion to an event. Those are really cool because if that's the case, then we'll have the history of the event in God's word and we'll have the feelings of the man in God's word both together. Those are really cool. This is not one of those. Sorry. This psalm doesn't give us a specific date and time, but there are some cool clues in the psalm that help us kind of guess what's going on when David wrote it. There's obviously a lot of talk of war and enemies. You would have heard that. And that's a lot of David's life. There's a lot of war and enemies. And David probably wrote this psalm after he'd seen many battles and many victories, and he may have drawn from a bunch of different experiences to pen this prayer to God, but there is this special little clue in verse 21 that potentially gives us some neat context. It says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. That's interesting. That's fairly specific. So when was David in a besieged city in his life? Like normally he's the one doing the besieging as a conquering king. But we do have one instance in scripture where we read that David found himself in a besieged city. That's in 1 Samuel 23. We read these words. This is before David is king while Saul still wants him dead. Now it was told to Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he's shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all of the people to go to war, to go down to Keilah and to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy this city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. And David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Now, I am not certain that this psalm was written as a prayer in this specific circumstance, but there are a bunch of things that relate, and so it's probably not too much of a stretch, especially with the besieged city. In the story, uh, King David is actually just, he's not king yet, but David has just rescued this city from another army. He saved them, and then he moved in and became their neighbor, and then he hears that Saul knows where he's at, and he's coming to get him. So he cries out to God. You saw that in the story. Well, guess what? In the psalm, in verses 17 and 22, he cries out. He calls upon God in distress. And in the story, God hears him and answers him. In the psalm, God hears him and answers him. God says that the people of the city are going to betray David. Even though he's just saved them and now he lives with them. 
board, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. This part especially, because of all of my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. You can almost feel it, right? And then we have that last verse in 1 Samuel that says, God did not give David into Saul's hand. Verse 8 in our psalm, you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. So again, I'm not certain that this psalm was written in this specific circumstance, but I think that David is at least thinking about, at least in part this time in his life as he prays this out to God. And this psalm is what we would call an individual lament. So David is sad, he's scared, he's in distress, and he's calling out to God. Now as church, we should probably start relating this text to ourselves, right? but you've probably never been under siege. Maybe the closest you can relate is time out as a kid. Feels like you're in a wall saying, let me out of here. But let's look at some of those human feelings, those expressions that David uses, because I think we're all going to find ourselves in here. Look at the feeling words that he uses. Have you felt a couple of these things in a circumstance, in a relationship? Shame, affliction, Distress, hidden, grief, sorrow, sighing, iniquity, reproach, dread, forgotten, broken, plotted against. You ever felt like that? Maybe you feel like that now? First off, that happens. This happens. This is part of the human experience. This is King David talking, remember? This is a man after God's own heart, and he is still feeling all of these hard emotions. Everybody who lives long enough will experience these things. And so you're not unique if you feel like that, which means you're not alone. You ever felt lonely, sorrowful, dread, like someone's out to get you, shame, grief? Many of us are feeling some of these things right now. We got hard stuff going on. Friends, feeling like this doesn't suddenly make you a worse Christian. Like, garbage happens. <laughs> Sometimes people are out to get you. Sometimes circumstances do suck the joy out of living. And you don't have to feel like it's a wrong place to be if you're feeling these feelings. Now, there's a caveat there. You do have to feel like it's a wrong place to be if you're feeling those feelings because of your own sin. Hard circumstances, tough stuff, is not a license to sin. Bad relationships, hard circumstances, that's not an IOU from God. He doesn't owe you a thing. But not all sorrow, not all suffering is because of our own sin. Sometimes life from our perspective is just not fair. Now the flip side of that, so if you do feel like that right now, it doesn't suddenly make you a worse Christian. It also doesn't suddenly make you a better one. Some people think that suffering is like this inherently Christian thing. No, all people suffer. Well, then maybe you say, well, suffering produces Christian character. 
I mean, it has the potential to do that. But suffering also costs some people their faith. That's a common enough story, right? I believed in God and then this hard thing happened to me and so I realized God couldn't exist because of the hard thing that happened in my little life. That's common enough. And David is gonna teach us here by example how to make sure hard things don't ruin us and don't taint our view of God. So really, this psalm is about calling out to God in hard things. That's the basic lesson we learn from looking at this thing at 30,000 feet. Cry out to God when life gets hard. Why? Why? Because it's the right place to go. (laughs) Did you notice David begging God to be what God is? Do you notice that in there? He says, God, be a rock of refuge. Be my deliverer. Be strong. Save me. And then verses later, he says, God, you are my rock and fortress and refuge. He's asking God to be something God certainly is. At a human level, look at what David's, what is he actually asking for? He's actually asking for protection, to be rescued from somebody who wants him dead. That's his request. Hopefully that's not your specific life circumstance. But do you call out the character of God when things get hard for you? Do you do that? Like look at the first words out of David's mouth. The first thing he says, in you, Lord, do I take refuge. God, you are where I'm going as soon as things get hard. The moment things get tough. Friends, is that your pattern? Think about your own life. When things aren't easy, when they're stressful, when they're just plain full, when they're just painful, is that your first step? Do you run towards the Lord? Examine, what what is my tendency? Do I go towards God or do I go towards some kind of neutral temporary relief or do I go towards sin? Some outlet, you start drinking again, suddenly you're watching porn again, you're ignoring your important relationships with the people you love most, suddenly you're just giving them the silent treatment. David is showing us a better way. He's showing us the first place to go for resilience, for true comfort, for actual hope. And basically that first line in the psalm is, I trust you, God. That's the crux of the psalm. You'll see it over and over again in a couple verses, verse 14 included. It's not only about crying out to God in hard things, but it's also about expressing your trust in God despite all of the hard things. David is basically saying, I'm not trusting in these city's walls or in my men around me or in some hideaway in the mountainside. Ultimately, I am placing my trust In you, Lord. Now, there's nothing wrong with strong walls and mighty men or mountainsides. There's nothing wrong with those things. But David knows that if he puts his trust in those things, they will not hold up under the weight. At some point, walls crumble, mighty men stumble, mountains become rubble. He knows that he needs to call to something more secure than a fortress, something stronger than 600 mighty men, and something bigger than a mountain. So he hangs his hat on the true source. Lord, you're where I'm going. 
Friends, do we do this? Don't we sometimes trust in created things instead of the creator when things get really hard? I do. Now, it's probably not walls or warriors or mountainsides, but do you find sometimes you feel anxious and to find your security, you check the balance of your bank account? Maybe you're feeling a little unloved and to make sure your safety's okay, you rely on someone else's affirmation of you? Or that you feel like your success in life sits squarely on your own shoulders? Now, there's nothing wrong with money or relationships or hard work. Those are good things. It's just that they can't be trusted. <laughs> Not in the sort of way that they won't ultimately someday be disappointing, right? Money makes for a great tool and a terrible foreman. People make for great companions, but terrible gods. You make for a great worker, but a terrible savior. It's bad definitions. It's like misplaced just in a little way. It's not that it doesn't make some sense. It does make some sense to go to those places, just not totally. It's like if you had a sweet bass boat. Picture it with me. Mm. And then you put that thing on the Kanaka jig. Yeah, that's water with fish in it. But that's not where that boat belongs. It's like photographing a wedding with the lens cap on. Yeah, I took a bunch of pictures at the wedding. But that's not how that thing was designed to function best. Human trust was designed at its deepest level to be placed in the Lord. That's where it belongs. That's where faith is to be placed. So is he trustworthy? He's going to argue for the trustworthiness of God. He shows us a whole bunch of character traits of God in this psalm alone. So let's look at some of them. Because one of the things you maybe noticed as the psalm was read for us was all this like personification of God, right? He gives God ears and eyes and a face and hands. God doesn't have those things, but he's describing God in human terms, not because yet he's a person, but because he's describing how personal this God is. He wants us to know what he's like and to understand him. Have you ever considered that for a second? Like, God is totally unknowable. Like, not understandable at all unless God decides to reveal himself to humanity. We got no shot of figuring him out on our own. He has to disclose himself to us. Without him showing himself to us, we have no shot at knowing him. But because he has, that reveals something about him, he wants to be personal. And there's this really intimate verse in there. In verse 16, in the middle of all of David's distress, David says, Lord, make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. God, make your face shine on me. Can you think of another place in the Bible where the Lord makes his face shine upon you? Can you think of one? This verse is actually quoting Numbers chapter 6. That worked really well. Numbers chapter 6, where God tells Moses to tell Aaron the priest to bless the people of God. That's where that line comes from. And part of the blessing that God gives his people is may the Lord make his face 
shine upon you. Now, there's two beautiful pieces to that image. The first is that you and I, we have the opportunity to look God in the face. He's oriented towards us in such a way that we can see him, that he can see us. That's personal. But beyond that, Lord, make your face shine on me. Shine, what's that about? That word literally means beam, like smile with delight. That's amazing. Lord, look at me and smile. God, I'm praying that when you look over at me, that you would light up, that your face would beam with delight. David is saying, God, you promised. You promised this blessing. I'm in obedience to you, and I'm asking that you would smile on me because God is personal to David. David knows him. God's close to him. And he's also God. Like David's not shy about pointing out God titles. He says things like this. God's a rock, a fortress, a refuge. God knows, he hears, he sees, he leads, he guides. He does all of this God stuff. He's all-knowing. He's the leader and guider. And David also proclaims the kind of character that this God has. Steadfast love, goodness, righteousness. God's the redeemer. He's merciful. He's faithful. And you can see throughout this psalm, in the midst of whatever terrible circumstances are going on in David's life, David is strengthened and encouraged by reciting to himself the character of his God. By reciting to God what God is like. Look at verses 7 and 8. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. He's rejoicing in the middle of this besieged city because you've seen my affliction. You've known the distress of my soul. You've not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You've set my feet in a broad place. He's rejoicing because of God's steadfast love. David is emboldened because he knows how God is. Knowing what God is like is changing his perspective on his own circumstances. It's sweetening the bitter. It's softening the pain. It's having real benefits in David's actual life. And, and that assurance, like the character of God, that might seem like cheap help when something's hard, right? Like you're going through something brutal. Does it really help to hear, well, God is good all the time. Don't panic. God's always faithful. You can have joy and be glad because God sees what you're going through. God works all things for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. Be patient in affliction. Suffering is producing a weight of eternal glory for you. Does that do anything? Isn't that like the shallowest lip service? Isn't that like slapping a bow on a bag of garbage and calling it a gift? Isn't that like a simplistic answer to a complicated problem? Isn't that like salt in the wound? No. No, those, those words are not cheap or weak or useless. That's not a bland pat on the back. And that's because what those words are describing is an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God in the universe. He is not weak help. Knowing what God is like is 
tangible reprieve in hard things. David is showing us how to actually hope in the Lord. Think about this guy's circumstances. He has a murderous army marching against him. (laughs) He knows that there's a city full of people just waiting to betray him. He has actual, actual life and death decisions to make. He's got major problems. (laughs) He's not minimizing them. He's not saying they're not real. He's saying that they do not stack up beside the king of kings. They just look so small compared to what his God is like. And that assurance, the character of God, that confidence was enough for David. That confidence was enough for Jesus Christ. You maybe caught a familiar phrase as we read through that psalm. In verse five, into your hands I commit my spirit. That sounded familiar, right? That's because Jesus Christ prayed this psalm from the cross. He declared his trust in his Father with these words from the cross. He's saying, I'm I'm trusting you, Lord. Jesus wasn't making light of his trials. He was dying. He anticipated not, not deliverance from death and dying, but he trusted God even in death and dying. And that trust is later fulfilled in the resurrection. You got to think about that, that the the goodness and faithfulness of God, knowing what his father was like, was real comfort, real assurance to Jesus in his last breaths. Jesus was taking refuge. Oh, Lord, in you do I take refuge in his final moments. It didn't change his circumstances. It just reoriented them under God. So what do we do? Because don't you want to be able to like run towards God like David does? Don't we all want that? We want that well-worn path to Jesus when enemies assail you, when that diagnosis comes, when that kid walks away from the Lord. We all, we all want a well-worn path to Jesus. Well, firstly, friends, we can totally pray this psalm. (laughs) That's an option. (laughs) You can call out to God for deliverance in hard things, all the while declaring your trust in him. That'd be a very good thing to do. And I think beyond that, the last two verses of our psalm give us a bit of a blueprint for developing a firm trust in him. So let's look at those last two verses. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. There's kind of three imperatives in there, three to-dos. And the first is, love the Lord. Devote yourself to God in trust. Fall in love with the God who controls all things. He's got you. This has to be our first step in learning to trust him. Do you love him? Is he so, so beautiful to you? Like, do you desire God? Do you love the God you see in the pages of Scripture? The Lord, the Lord who preserves the faithful but punishes those who act in pride. Christ loved the Lord unto death. He loved his Father. There's perfect affection within the Trinity 
They love one another perfectly, and that's our call too, to love the Lord. The more I read the pages of Scripture and find out what this God is like, the second imperative, the next one, be strong and courageous. That's a surprisingly common command from God. Be strong and courageous. All throughout the Bible to believers, Moses, Joshua, the apostles in the New Testament, be strong and let your heart take up courage. Maybe sometimes we get the idea that Christians are kind of almost supposed to be weak and timid, maybe even fearful. No way. Our inner selves are supposed to be confident and assured. Think about what they're tied to, the knowledge they have. We are able to have resolve, deep convictions, boldness. It's not dependent on ourselves. And David is saying this in the middle of really, really, really hard things. Be strong and courageous because we're supposed to let hard things strengthen us instead of weaken us. How? Right? Some people collapse under the weight of hard things. It's understandable. Well, partly it's because suffering reveals to us a lot about what we believe is true. Right? And the Bible talks an awful lot about suffering, talks an awful lot about God, and what he's like, and what he has control over, hint, all things. So let me just read three New Testament passages out to all of you about what difficult things, what suffering has the potential to produce. And just see if you believe it. Shut your eyes. See if you believe this. Not, this is from Romans. Not only that, but we can rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us, and then from James, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then 2 Corinthians, and so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this Light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to not the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. All of these trials, all of this suffering, these hard things, it isn't doing nothing. It's not meaningless, friends. God says it is leading to hope. It's producing steadfastness, completeness, and it is preparing for you weight in glory, eternal weight. That's the truth of the matter. So do you believe it? In hard things, you want to let the character of God be formed up in you. So be strong and pick up courage. Trust that God sees things better than you see things. And so you can take him at his word for what he is doing. Believe it. So love the Lord, be strong and courageous. And then the last, wait for the Lord. You would have heard about this 
recently in your series. Wait for him. Don't stop calling out to him. Don't stop crying out to him. Persist in prayer. Beg, plead, ask your questions. But let your heart be calm. You can do deep, desperate praying even in a position of trust in the Father. Wait for God to force human history to glorify himself. Your circumstances to glorify him. God is working all things for good. He is all things. Not just good things. Not just some things. All things. You can trust him. And sometimes that means an awful lot of waiting. I want to be the first to admit that sometimes I have no idea how God is going to work things for good. A little baby with cancer? A youth with like dark mental illness? How? An accident for seemingly no reason? How, Lord? How could that possibly be used for good? I don't know how, but I know that they do. I'm not trusting in my own ability to sort information into categories that make sense in my own mind. I am trusting that the God who made everything and who sustains everything and who is saying, I am working all things for good, I'm trusting that he is indeed doing that. I don't know how, I just know that he is. And so this morning, I want us to take a moment of personal prayer with God. Okay, We're going to just quietly to ourselves invite God to hear us and to speak to us in prayer. And so if you kind of feel like if there's something in your life that feels an awful lot like a siege right now, like some things are coming up against you, I want you to just acknowledge that circumstance or relationship before God. Tell him about it. (laughs) And then find a verse or two in the psalm and Pray it back to God. Take God's words to you and make them your words to him. People have been praying this psalm for 3,000 years as a cry out to that same God that delivered David. Lord, deliver me. And so friends, this morning, take a couple minutes and cry out to him. And if you're sitting there, your life is pretty sweet right now. You're in that awesome spot. I want you to thank God for that and also find a couple verses that you can pray to him. So we're just going to quietly to ourselves pray for a few moments and then I'll close us in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we call out to you in trust. God, you are where we are going. You're our first move. We're walking towards you even here. We're acknowledging that we're sitting in your presence and we know, Lord, that you're here with us. And Lord, this morning I want to lift up those who called out to you, uh, maybe regarding sickness. Maybe it's themselves, maybe it's someone else, Lord. 
You are the great physician. You can heal. We call that out as, as your being, your essence, your nature. And Lord, for those who called out to you this morning in grief, maybe they've lost a loved one or they're losing a loved one. Lord, you're the shepherd. You comfort. I pray that for them this morning, that they would feel your comfort. God, for those who cried out to you this morning about their own sin, they've wandered from you. They're in a place they know they should not be in. Maybe they don't even really know how to get back. Lord, we call out that you're the one who can forgive sin. That, Lord, I'm praying you would fill them once again with your Holy Spirit. That you would change their hearts and have them desire the things of God instead of filling up their lives with these little temporary solutions. Lord, we call out to you. And for those who were praying this morning for the salvation of someone else, Maybe it's a friend or a family member, a child. Lord, hear those cries. We acknowledge that you are the Savior. You do the saving. And we're going to you for those things. Lord, rescue people. Lord God, we love you. We're trusting in you. We know your character. We know what you're like. We've seen how you've acted in history before. And God, when things are hard, we want to say honestly in our hearts, oh Lord, in you I'm taking refuge. You're my safe place. You're where I'm going to first. I pray that for my brothers and sisters, that they would sense the nearness of God. That they would remember once again, man, I've got full access to the throne room of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I'm coming. I'm bringing my request to you, Lord. These are my circumstances. This is the garbage I got. You're the only place that I'm going. And so love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but he abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. Let your hearts take up courage, all of you who wait for the Lord. And we can pray that because of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.